from the Townsend Center for the Humanities at UC Berkeley. Welcome to Berkeley Book Chats. I'm Timothy Hampton, director of the Townsend Center for the Humanities. Berkeley Book Chats showcase a Berkeley faculty member engaged in a public conversation about a recently completed work. This popular series highlights the richness of Berkeley's academic community. Today's conversation features Brian Wagner of the English Department discussing his book, The Tar Baby, A Global History. He is joined by Christopher Tomlins of the Berkeley Law School. Thank you, good afternoon. Uh, so as, as, as we've heard, as Tim has said, we're here to talk about Brian Wagner's delightful, provocative book, The Tar Baby, A Global History. Brian, of course, is well known to many of us as an associate professor in the English department here. Uh, his research focuses on African-American expression, history, and culture, about which he's written in Disturbing the Peace, Black Culture and the Police Power After Slavery, published 2009, and in lots more work right on the cusp of publication. Uh, and I, I should say it's a great personal pleasure for me to be his interlocutor on this occasion. Now, we'll all, I'm sure, have memories of our own first encounters with the story of the Thai baby. Uh, mine, uh, I get to tell you mine, you know. Mine was as a five-year-old child in grim mid-1950s England. Uh, where my greatest pleasure was to lose myself in the multiple volumes of a publication uh, named, as I recall, Newton's Pictorial Encyclopedia, uh, in which I encountered the version of the story popularized by Joel Chandler Harris amidst photographs, wonderful photographic essays about Shackleton's exploration of the Antarctic and stories of mythic Greek gods. I, I loved the story. That five-year-old me loved the story, but I remember it puzzling me, particularly its conclusion. Why did the rabbit want to be thrown into a briar patch? I had fallen myself into a patch of stinging nettles. I did not have fond memories of undergrowth. It seemed dangerous to me. And even though the rabbit seemed to love the briar patch in my five-year-old, very, very literal mind after being thrown into the briar patch, wasn't the rabbit still stuck to the tar baby? Well, Brian answers innumerable questions about the story in his book, although not to my chagrin, uh, my own five-year-old question. But I, I, I think his most remarkable claim, which is also his most remarkable achievement in the book, because the claim is very well substantiated, is not only that the history of the story of the Tar Baby is indeed, as the book's title suggests, a global history, in that it conforms to a story type found all over the world, a story type whose very global diffuseness renders questions about particulars of origin and transmission both and simultaneously fascinating, but also irrelevant in that meaning everywhere takes on a local cast. But also, and in a sense contradicting what I just said about locality, it's a story that actually has a transcendental universal meaning. Brian pays scrupulous attention to what the late 
Clifford Goertz would recognize as thick description, or in other words, the established ethnographic tradition of interpreting the story. But he believes its importance lies elsewhere, as he says in the final pages of the book, restored to its full range, the Thai baby presents nothing less than a comprehensive philosophy of world history. Now, that is uh, uh, actually, in my view, that is a brilliant claim. Um, it's also one that invokes uh, a sort of a Hegelian terrain that modernist historians of the kind that trained me as a historian uh, longer ago than I care to think um, have almost completely abandoned uh, for the low-hanging fruit of contextualization and complexity and contingency. So I'd like us, as we move forward in, over the next hour, I'd like us to keep an eye on that comprehensive philosophy of world history and this conversation. Um, but first, and perhaps as a way to begin, and perhaps to provide a pathway toward the Tar Baby's world historical importance, uh, maybe I can ask Brian to tell us how he came to write the book. And perhaps as you tell us that, can you also tell us about the literatures that you encountered along the way and how their claims and their deficits shape your path? Great. Go for it. Thank you so much, Chris. Um, and thank all of you for coming out. Um, thanks to the Townsend Center for having us. This is a great series. I'm, I'm, really, um, I'm really honored to be here. Um, do, you, do you all know the story? Yeah. Yeah. No. Ah. Okay. So, so let me tell. It's important. Let me tell you the story because this is. It's very simple, but also, I mean, as Chris was suggesting, I believe it. It contains it contains everything. Um, so here's the story, though. Um, so it's um, uh, there's a, a rabbit and there's a fox. They're neighbors. All summer, the the rabbit spends his time singing songs and drinking wine and smoking cigarettes. Right. While the 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 fox um, uh, tends his fields, works hard. Right. So then. The rabbit, the following winter, steals all of the, the hard-fought produce that has been grown by the fox. Right? So the next year, the fox decides that he's going to catch the tar, he's going to catch the rabbit rather, um, by building a tar baby out of tar and turpentine, this kind of like, lifelike figurine. He places it on the road to his fields. Um, and when the rabbit approaches the tar baby, um, he greets the tar baby. And when he is not greeted in return, he strikes the tar baby twice with his hands, kicks it twice with his feet, and headbutts it until he's stuck at five points and left at the mercy of the fox. Right? Um, not trapped for long, however, um, because he's able to trick, in most cases, he's able to trick the, the fox into tossing him into the briar patch where he's able to make his escape. Um, there's a lot of variation in the story, right? You know, there are hundreds of versions of the story, different animals involved, different crops involved, different, you know, and there, and there are also variations in narrative structure, but that's a kind of broad outline um, that will give you a place to start. And it's really important, too, that um, those three parts to the story, you know, first the theft, then the setting of the trap to catch the thief, and third, the escape, you know, frequently the briar patch, sometimes there are other, there are other modes as well. Um, Chris asked about um, uh, you know, how, how I came to be interested in, in the, um, the story. In part, it has to do with its, its canon, the canonization of the story that's written by Joel Chandler Harris and attributed to the fictional character Uncle Remus in 1880, which is then, I think, for many people, most um, 
familiar from its adaptation um, by Walt Disney in the movie Song of the South in the 1940s. Um, and that is, um, that, there's a lot to be said about um, its um, diffusion in mass culture. I, I'm really interested in a different kind of story about its, um, its earlier circulation um, and also its intellectual reception. Okay, so in the 1880s, um, actually in the wake of Joel Chandler Harris's publishing his version of the story, um, people working in the nascent disciplines of social science were obsessed with this story. Okay? Um, if you look at the first, first issue of the Journal of American Folklore, journal still in existence, there is a forum about the Tar Baby and its history of circulation. Right? It, I mean, it was already an important enough issue in 1885 for it not to have just an article, but a whole forum of essays about this question. Um, and um, at that moment, you know, it's really the case that some very essential um, ideas about culture and politics are formed around this representative case of the tar baby. So one main um, point of debate in the late 19th century that still kind of remains with us has to do with how the story got from place to place. So by some contemporary estimates, the story is the most often collected story in the late 19th century. Right? But it was collected on five different continents having evolved over, over centuries. Right? So it was a, recognized from the beginning as a global story. Right? Interestingly, there's no Australian version from the classical period of collection. There's no version in Antarctica, which is like not as surprising. You know, but, but Australia is actually very surprising for a number of reasons. But five continents de developed over, century, over centuries in hundreds of forms. And so there's interest at that moment in how did the story get to all of those places? So people develop various hypotheses about how it got from place to place. One hypothesis, which I call a theory of diaspora somewhat anachronistically, um, says that culture, culture, um, the trajectory of culture follows lines of racial descent. Right? So this, is a, this is often involves positing an African origin for the story and, and imagining its transmission through the slave trade to the Americas and elsewhere. Um, that's one theory of its circulation. Another is a theory um, that um, is called at the time diffusion, right? Um, which actually emphasizes not that culture follows lines of racial descent, but instead that it crosses over lines of racial descent, right? That various populations inevitably are sharing stories that came from other kinds of places, and that kind of promiscuous circulation of culture um, was, was something um, that was inevitably global um, in its scale. So people are working out that argument around this particular case. And that remains true all the way through um, into the 20th century, where, um, to skip forward, um, by the 1960s and 1970s, people are thinking anew about cultural politics in ways where the trickster becomes a kind of paradigm for understanding politics as something, as Chris was saying, that's contingent, you know, that, that's embedded in the everyday, right? rather than being about um, the grand scale of revolution. Right, or, the, or the, the institutional mechanics of reform. So this is to say, again, that over the long, the long duration of the story's reception, it's been an important case um, for thinking. And I think it's actually been an especially important case in part because the original mystery of how it got to be in all of these places remains a mystery. Right? You know, it's unknowability. The unknowability of its transmission has been a spur to thought um, for um, more than a century now. Um, so that, that's kind of, I mean, it was, it was like recognizing both that people don't know that history as much um, and just feeling that, that the um, kind of intellectual consequences of the story's reception were really um, fascinating. Um, 
So let me, let me say a few things about um, the, the comprehensive philosophy of world history. And this is to just give you some kind of sense of you know, why I'm not crazy, um, you know, because that sounds like a really <laughs> grandiose claim, right? Um, and, and then I'll, I'll pause for a second and we can talk about how some of these things develop. Um, so one of the things that's interesting um, is especially kind of in the new social history when people are about everyday resistance, and we're thinking about the, the, the story as a, a kind of paradigm for politics, is that they all go to that version that's familiar to Chris. They go to the version that's um, told by the fictional character, Uncle Remus. Um, there's lots to say and lots that has been said about how that version involves a lot of distortion and stereotyping. Um, di the dialect is very heavy. Um, there's, a, there's one thing in particular that people haven't commented on that's important to me about that, the canonization of that version of the story, which is that in that tripartite structure I described to you, right, you know, theft, you know, setting the trap for the thief and the escape, the first part is left out by Joel Chandler Harris, right? It begins in effect in many SRS with the setting of the trap, right? Um, I think that this is really consequential, not only for how we experience that story, but also for the theory of politics that's built from that story, right? Because when you don't have a kind of initial situation, um, it, it becomes the case that there, um, the reasons why the wolf and the rabbit are fighting are kind of self-evident. Right? You know, they're writing because um, wolves are wolves and, and you know, rabbits are rabbits and they, they naturally are our enemies. Right? Um, it also follows that you know, the story becomes a kind of allegory where differences in social position correspond to species difference. Right? So people who are stronger, who have more power in society correspond to the stronger animal. People who have relative weakness in society correspond to the weaker animal. Um, it follows as well that the Peasants, slaves, and um, natives who are, who are sharing the story have a natural affinity and identification with the weaker animals, with the, the trickster. This is a kind of standard interpretation you get. But again, it's crucially a standard interpretation that depends upon the canonization of the version of the story attributed to Uncle Remus. Because when you look at that opening situation, things become a lot more complicated. Okay, because um, the opening situation, um, I'll, give you an, I'll give you an example to, to make it more concrete. There's a version of the story that appears in 1841 in a Cherokee tribal newspaper in Oklahoma. Um, and this version of the story has, has, has an opening sequence that is um, actually quite common. You find it, um, Alfred Burton Ellis collects almost the same story in the so-called slave coast of West Africa in 1890. Um, but so this, this version though in 1841 from Oklahoma begins with um, a drought and the animals have to get together to try and figure out what to do because they, they can't get water, right? So they say, here's what we'll do. We'll all work together to dig a well, right? We'll dig a well and then we'll all share the water. Anyone who participates in the digging of the well can have water. If you don't participate, fine, but you don't get to use our water. So they do this, things get better, they use the well. The rabbit, however, decides that he's not going to, um, he's not going to dig the well, because he knows that he can sneak in at night and take the water for himself anyway, right? Um, and not only does he sneak in and steal the water, he muddies the well so that no one else can use it, right? So this is a version of a kind of classic um, so-called social dilemma known as free riding, right? You know, the idea that, you know, if, you know, you try to, if, when societies try to organize themselves um, you know, to, to manage these kinds of common pool resources, something like a well, right? Um, there's a problem, right? Which is that people are naturally inclined to, to be selfish. And if they know that they, don't, they can still get access to the well without doing the labor, 
inevitably there will be free riders in that situation, right, who will take advantage of the resource without contributing labor, which will eventually lead to a kind of situation of chaos, or to what Garrett Hardin calls the tragedy of the commons, right? This is just one, as Chris, this is like one example of many um, that are, are used to um, uh, uh, kind of uh, generate the story of the tar baby. And the amazing thing, and this like, um, this blew my mind when I realized this, the amazing thing is that literally, um, with very few exceptions, all of those stories have exact analogs in natural rights discourse, in the law of nations, and in political economy. I give you one example, this kind of problem of free riding. There are other examples that have to do with a kind of um, you know, labor mixing argument that we know from John Locke. Other examples that have to do with ideas of just war. Others that have to do with the idea of res nullius or the kind of um, legitimacy of occupation of unoccupied or uncultivated land. Literally, I mean, like, I'm not, like, it requires no interpretive ingenuity on my part to see that the story begins with those same narrative scenarios or thought experiments, right? Like, literally, they're the same. So not only is the story circulating in the same places at the same time as these ideas that we know from you know, colonial law and political economy, it's actually using the same narrative elements to address these problems of production and subsistence. Okay. Um, so this is in part why I have license, I think, to talk about the, the, the story as a work of philosophy. Um, there's a lot more to say about the problems that this poses. I'll, I'll, I'll say one thing and then I'll, I'll open up to Chris and we think more about this together. But one reason why I think this produces real trouble for the standard interpretation of the story, right, is that in the situation I described to you where the, the animals dig the well, um, identification with the trickster is really difficult, right? You know, like it's, it's actually the case that that situation is structured in such a way to make identification with the trickster almost impossible. Right? You know, it may actually be the case that in those situations the trickster has some kind of justification for his entitlement to the resource. But as this situation is structured, his motivations inevitably reduce to indolence and appetite. Right? Um, so it's literally the situation is structured as to make his um, perspective unavailable to representation. Actually, in intellectual history, as you all may know, that position of the so-called lazy rascal right, is famously a position that is resistant to representation. From Karl Marx to Gayatri Spivak, there's a lot of discourse on the fact that that perspective is actually something that is blocked from, from view in classical political economy. It's true in the story, too. You actually don't need to go to intellectual history, though, to understand that point. If you just think again about the fact that the story does not permit us to see things from the perspective of the trickster in that initial kind of situation. Which is to say, though, it's not to say that people who were telling the story did not identify with the trickster. There's lots of kind of contextual evidence to show that that was the case. What I'm arguing is that identification with the trickster in that case is a lot more complicated than we have previously assumed. Not something we can take um, for granted at the start, not something we can assume um, on the grounds that the story is an allegory. It's actually something that rather emerges over the course of the story, especially through the so-called stickfast sequence, the, the, middle, the middle scene of, of a struggle for recognition and entrapment, and that closing scene of the briar patch, that it becomes possible to see how the story, um, in a kind of amazing way, um, comes to assert its perspective from within a situation where its perspective is supposed to be absent. Okay, so that's, I'll, I'm gonna stop there and we can talk some more, but that's partly the kind of way in which I, I try to 
think about the story differently from how people ha um, previously have. There was um, one, as I was reading it, and of course once tempted in reading the story to, to sort of to begin to extrapolate or impose um, uh, interpretations of one's own. And I couldn't help thinking, although this may be a stretch, but I, I couldn't help thinking of Animal Farm mm -hmm. um, Orwell. And in a way, the context in which I was thinking of Animal Farm was actually the one that you have just described, which is the position of the trickster vis-a-vis -vis the collective mm -hmm. that uh, take it upon themselves to alleviate their situation cooperatively. Mm -hmm. And it's, it strikes me that, in a way, um, the, the, the rabbit becomes less difficult to sort of access imaginatively if, in a way, the rabbit, you perceive the rabbit is, is the rabbit is kind of pushing back against two kinds of modernity, you mm -hmm. might say. There's the modernity of, of collectivism, the modernity of the, the group that comes together to resolve its problems, which you know, is illustrated in Animal Farm mm -hmm. uh, and meets its own tragic end in Animal Farm. Mm -hmm. And there's the rabbit who's, simul who's also pushing back against a different kind of modernity, mm -hmm. which is a capitalist modernity, a modernity of um, improvement, uh, improvement for profit, improvement of uh, the, the, the accumulation mm -hmm. of resources. Um, and I mean, the place that that took me uh, and this is this is to, to to leap toward the end of the book, toward the philosophy of world history, in a sense, is to say it seems to me that you end up kind of I don't know if this is company you want to be, and you kind of end up you 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 because of other things you say about his work in the course of the book, but you you kind of in a, end up in a sense um, sort of alongside James C. Scott, but in yeah. the art of not being governed. Yeah. Which is, you know, this is one a wonderful, perhaps people know, know James Scott's work and that book in particular, which is, an, it's, it's essentially, it's a kind of an altitude theory of resistance, you might say, that um, the way you explain how different kinds of cultures have developed in mountain, areas as opposed to valley areas is that you see valley people as those who have driven out or expropriated those who initially lived in those areas, have developed them into, in Scott's terms, uh, paddy culture, because his, his, his argument is largely Asian-based. Uh, and the original uh, inhabitants desire to escape from the oppression of paddy, uh, 
of kingdoms or cultures, political cultures, dependent upon paddy culture, so they move upwards. Literally, they move upwards out of the valleys into mountain ranges. And the, you know, your rabbit is behaving in a very similar way, it seems to me. And this is your philosophy of world history, that this is, this is a kind of a movement away from forms of oppression, um, and also a movement away from forms of oppressive modernity as mm -hmm. well, I think. Yeah. Um, that, that's a that, thank you. That's a that's a lot to think about. And and I think I mean I I, I cite that book approvingly in that closing section on the Briar I didn't, Patch. I didn't, yes. I, and so so in sorry. that in that sense, I think I th I would say yes. You know, I mean, I have quibbles with it, but you know, the point being that I think about the Briar Patch not as an abstract symbol, which is often how it's read, but as I actually like pointing to a concrete place and actually talk a lot about Liberty County, Georgia, in in the concluding chapter yeah, yeah. and like the particular kinds of commons institutions, the informal economy that exists there, as something that's referenced by the Briar Patch in the story. But so this idea of there being you know in the mountains and in, in the far off reaches or the bottoms, this is where people can go to find protection from the civilizations that might otherwise try to enslave them or or exploit them in various ways. It's a way of thinking about you know what the Briar Patch is in the story. I think you know it's a maroon settlement. You know it, it is a you know it is it is a kind of enclave um, that um, exists in the midst of civilization, but is not of civilization, right? I mean, and it's a marker therefore of the kind of failure of primitive accumulation, right, or of the process of expropriation to, you know, totalize itself everywhere. There remain these kinds of, um, uh, you know, um, uh, mountain fastnesses and, and, and kind of shelters, right, regions of refuge, you know, um, where, where it's possible to ground oneself. And so that is, you know, how I think about it. And the kind of larger intervention there, though, is again to say that, you know, in terms of how we've thought about politics and culture, um, the, the Tar Baby has been a central example. Um, there's some important kinds of problems with how culture and politics have been thought through since the 1970s, you know, questions about the composition of the concept of agency that we've inherited. Um, and there's a way in which I think, um, you know, the Tar Baby allows us to specify better some of those concepts. You might say that the story anticipates more than we have realized about the claims that have been made in its name. Right? And so by thinking about the situation of the tar babies, the situation of expropriation, by thinking about its scale as the same scale as the so-called great transformation in world history, I think it actually becomes possible to think more precisely about what we mean when we talk about culture, grounding it again in, that, in, that, you know, in those shatter zones you know, that, that James Scott talks about. I think that it, um, it takes a kind of theory of agency that develops, our, again, with uh, the Tar Babies, one of its central cases, in the 1960s and 1970s as an alternative to older theories of political subjectivity, right, that find politics to come from the, the sloughing off of the dead weight of tradition or the revelation of contradictions from the point of production, those old theories of politics are things that the new social historians in the 1970s are trying to do away with. Right? To come up with a new idea of politics, it's about contingency, about everydayness. Right? Um, and there are problems with that theory that they come up with. And I think, actually, the Tar Baby story has better solutions than we have realized. Because, again, it knows more about what historians have been trying to say based on the story than people have recognized. And so thinking about the story in, in the terms that I think it invites right, um, offers, I think, um, a, 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 an important alternative um, to received ideas about culture and politics that actually you know, go all the way back to the 1880s, but there are different stages along the way. And there are many important ways in which I think we're still speaking through those terms. And mm. the story still has things to teach us.
Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think what I really liked about it and about your your analysis of it, and and uh, particularly the the briar patch. I mean, exit is a an option. You don't have to stay and struggle remorselessly and get beaten over and over again. The rabbit gets to leave, or yeah. the rabbit gets to try to leave at any rate. Yeah, absolutely. I, I wonder, I mean, before we open, um, one of the most, in a sense, one of the most intricate um, and in a way uh, difficult or uh, demanding points of analysis I think in the in the book is when you you canvas what you call the stick fast. Yeah, and I wonder if you could share some of that because it's really really this is the point where the rabbit is stuck. Yeah, um, and it's a point where you say in the book no. And ex explanations of what this means diverge. Yeah. Um, and one explanation diverges sort of very unsatisfyingly into a kind of global recapitulation mm -hmm. of the story instead of actually grappling with the meaning of the story at that point. Yeah. So maybe you could explain. Yeah, you're that. right. It is, a, it is an, involved, it's an involved chapter. I'm at so, so, I mean, so one, I'll, I'll just actually, I'll, I will canvas like a few points um, that we could potentially follow up on. The first thing I would say about this, this middle sequence where the trap is sprung, right, is that actually it's continuous with the structure of that opening sequence. In the sense that here, too, again, you're not really seeing the situation from the point of view of the trickster, right? Like, we, the, impl the implied audience knows in the same way that the wolf knows that a tar baby is a trap or a tool, right? It's an instrument designed to produce an effect, right? Whereas the rabbit thinks, the rabbit actually thinks it's a fetish object, right? I mean, there's actually a lot to say about the story's fetishism. The rabbit makes the mistake of attributing sentience and intentions to a physical object, right? That the implied audience knows you know, is not capable of, of recognizing him in return and in responding to his. So there's a way in which the dramatic irony of that sequence is continuous with the earlier sequence in the sense that it actually locks us out of the rabbit's perspective. Um, and it leads then to a kind of, Ralph Ellison has written very beautifully on this, a kind of existential impasse, you know, that's implied um, as, um, you know, that, that, that mistake um, leads to him being stuck fast and immobilized. Um, it, it becomes, I think, um, more complicated when you think about the context in which um, the story is circulating, which is a context in which, um, Garrett Hardin aside, um, there are many successful examples of commons institutions, right? Where people are, I, I talk a lot about this example from the Philippines of, of the Tar Baby story, where, um, you know, in the context of the Philippines, the story is about this guy, Masoy, who's trying to grow fruits and vegetables, and this ape steals all of them. But um, in the context of the Philippines, agriculture was happening at the turn of the 20th century when the story was collected um, in a way that was very much dependent on common institutions that were highly successful. So like, um, you know, um, Zangeras, like this kind of irrigation collectives that existed at the time are fundamental. It wasn't the case, in other words, in the world where that story, when it was being told, that people confronted a state of nature as an individual in which their property was fundamentally insecure. 
There are actually institutions in place right, you know, that, through which you know, um, these things would be negotiated and protections were offered. Um, they weren't always successful, but in many cases they, 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 they were. Um, and so what's interesting to me about that context for the story is that I think it suggests in some interesting ways that I'm not going to be able to fully elaborate that the stick fast sequence contains some sparks of consciousness or some sparks of the rabbit's perspective um, where you're starting to see a way in which um, what is disallowed or, 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 or barred from representation at the outset, his kind of sense of a kind of enduring um, entitlement to a, an existing set of resources actually starts to come through. And I, I spend a lot of time thinking about his strange optimism in approaching the tar baby in the road, right? You know, like it's, it's this kind of interesting thing, right? It's a stranger, you know, he's not like, is this an enemy? Like, you know, he doesn't like go into his defensive crouch. He's like, how are you doing, right? You know, like that's his, which is, if you, if you kind of, you know, bracket the dramatic irony for a second, it's kind of an optimistic, beautiful thing to do. You know? And if you think about it from his perspective for a second, he's understanding that interaction right, as a breach in an existing set of social relations or an existing etiquette it's reduced to. Right? And I think at that moment, you can start to see the dream work of the stick fast sequence where the, the wolf is replaced by a proxy, a tar baby. Right? And you can see the tar baby's kind of indifference, unwillingness to recognize the, the rabbit as, as a kind of repetition of the, the boorish indifference that's shown by colonizers and slavers, those who you know, are, are ignoring the, the existing arrangements in lands that are being claimed you know, um, or places where you know, um, the, the regimes of property are being um, imposed by force. So far from the kind of story you get from people like Eric Hardin, where state and market-based solutions are the kind of inevitable unfolding of history, you know, from this perspective, it becomes possible to understand how um, modernization is something that's imposed by force in a situation where there's an existing regime of social relations that's being ignored in exactly the way that the tar baby ignores the rabbit. So we've been covering an immense amount of ground in a very short, <laughs> in a very short time, and it, it's kind of indicative of how much is packed into, into this book. But of course, um, you're here not simply to listen to us talk to each other, but to join in. So, so the floor is open to anybody who might have a question for Brian or a comment uh, of their own, an experience to share, um, anything. Sir, please. Hi, uh, Brian, what's, what's the oldest version of the story that you found and, and where is it from? Yeah, that's a, that's a, I mean, it's, so dating is really difficult, right? You know, so it, I mean, it would be from, it'd be from the 1830s, earliest printed version. But obviously, so oral traditions don't leave dated traces, right? So it's the working assumption of everyone who's collecting the story before the 1830s, 1840s, all the way up to, all the way up to more recently, that the story's circulation exceeds, <clears throat> you know, the kind of moment of collection. Right, so you know um, there was something in the late 19th century a funny hypothesis called the age area hypothesis, right, which says that like the further apart two instances of a, a story or piece of culture are, the older it would be. So this is it's it's certainly the case that I'm, um, you know, I would say the important answer is we don't know, you know, but in terms of like material trace, it's it's 1831. Okay. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you. In, in looking at that story from Oklahoma in the 1840s, I was thinking about Flint, Michigan for some reason, and I wonder if, yeah. if it, if it yeah. works out to, to wonder how anyone would identify with the trickster. 
could a, a corporate entity ad identify with the trickster at all? If you tease that out, yeah, that that's really that's really interesting. I would I would, I would say I would say yes, right? You know, and, and in fact, you know, um, there's a kind of I mean, there is a funny kind of identification with the kind of motive of profit maximization, right? You know, like that that's that's there as well. So absolutely, it, it's available, but it's not available in the way that people have interpreted the story. But that's a, that's and there are a lot of things to say about Flint and about how you know a commitment to a kind of Common pool, you know, into and, and a public good, right, is something that the story tries to foreclose at the outset, but in, in important ways, I think, arrives there um, at the end. Thank you. Please, thank you. Thank you so much for this conversation. I was wondering if you can talk about the fraturity of this tale as it continues to move through media. So you talked about the oral history, turning into literature, turning into film, turning into theme park, turning into music. So what could we understand about the continued projection and significance of this tale? Yeah, that's a really, you know, it's, it's, this, is a good, this is a very good question, which is part of what Lashana is working on in her, her, dissertate, her dissertation. Um, so you know actually a lot more about this than I do. I am, uh, <laughs> Uh, and, and so, in a, in a funny way, you know, I mean, like, kind of what I know is like what I've read from from some other books, you know, because it was I, I made a very strategic choice to kind of foreclose, you know, especially after the Disney movie, like its circulation in mass culture, um, because precisely because it was kind of like the problem I was trying to address was the overrepresentation of that version of the story, right? Which has all of these, it, it's compromised in all of these ways. And so I'm, I'm really, you know, the, the, I, I, I do go up further, but like really the, what I call the major phase of collection is something like the 1880s to the 1930s. You know? And I'm really interested in that set of ethnographic interviews where the story is being recorded. Um, so it's a little bit artificial, right? Because obviously, you know, those stories kind of like um, move on in all these other kinds of ways. I mean, one thing I would say about it is the overrepresentation of one version of the story, right? You know, um, and um, but there's there's so much else to say about it, which is why I'm glad you're you're writing about it. <laughs> Please. Uh, in the in the last uh, election or the one before that, I forget which, there was some white politician who used the Tar Baby. Uh, uh, image in a speech and yeah. was castigated for it for making a racist remark. Yes. I never thought that the tar baby itself was a racist image, and I wonder if you could talk about that. Yeah, it's a, this is a really good question. It's actually how I start the book, too, is talking about this kind of issue that it's both simultaneously a racial epithet um, and you know, a, a, a figure of speech that refers to a situation that gets worse the harder you try to solve it. Right. Um, and so it's a complicated kind of question. Um, one thing that a lot of people have said, um, William Sapphire, John McWhorter, other people, have they, they've tried to suggest that its connotation as a racial epithet is pretty, of pretty recent vintage. You know? um, McWhorter, in particular, is very condescending on that point. Um, the, something that's important is that they're wrong on the facts, actually. Um, I have versions of it being used as a racial epithet in the 1820s, so before any instance of it, in a recorded instance of it in a story in the newspaper, there are various black space sketches where it's being used as an epithet. So it's important that those two senses, its sense of it as a, an insult, you know, a, a um, fundamentally degrading insult, and um, as a figure of speech coincide. And I would actually argue that they, they, you know, are in every way kind of continuous with one another. You know, the way in which the epithet tries to empty out the point of view 
you know, of its object, right? Um, uh, ridicule and negate, you know, the perspective on the world that that, you know, that, that figure um, might hold is in many ways, you know, uh, continuous with the kind of problem um, that, that's faced, you know, um, uh, you know when the, the, tar, the rabbit faces the tar baby, the kind of threat to subjectivity um, that's worked out there. Again, Ralph Ellison is so good on this, is actually quite continuous with the working of the epithet in the world. So I would actually say that you want to, and it's complicated, it, it, there are complicated things about writing a story that also has those connotations attached to it, but you kind of need to think about all of it together, I would say. Um, the important intervention I feel like I, I make on that point, though, is to kind of trace the longer history of the epithet, which a lot of people have claimed does not exist. Um, it's very important to the history of the story that um, that's a very old and longstanding usage. I'd like to, if I may, just to follow that. Um, uh, in the sense, first, the I'm not so sure about um, the American usage of the term, uh, but in English and also in, in Australian English, uh, the phrase a touch of the tar brush mm -hmm. is a reference to, it is a pejorative reference to uh, miscegenation, yeah. uh, to the product of miscegenation. Yeah. Um, and I'm struck by you know the repetition of tar as that which Clings, adheres, is difficult to get rid of, and I guess if that the 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 reason that I said you know that my five-year-old self was was sort of puzzled by what appears to be the rabbit's escape by being thrown into uh, the briar patch yeah. is there's nothing in the story, at least as I read it. Maybe it's Joel Chandler Harris's version that says that the rabbit is freed from the tar baby. So the rabbit gets to carry the tar baby as like a sort of a deficit wherever the rabbit goes. And it, it struck me that, you know, just as, as people have written uh, these intricate and interesting stories about, you know, in migration history, that is the reception of migrant populations, yeah. how the Irish became white. Yeah how Jews became white, or how you know, Eastern European, Southeastern European Jews became white. So in, in a way, the, the confrontation of the rabbit with the tar baby, one might arguably say, is this the story of how the African becomes black? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I, 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 think, I think there's definitely something to that. Um, so I want to address um, the two points. Um, one, one has to do with tar um, and um, Embrace, and then the other point. Oh, is about whether why why he's not still stuck to the tar baby. Right. Okay. Right. So I mean, it is really important, actually, to the On story. On which I am building a huge, a huge know, edifice. Yeah, edifice. I, I like your edifice. Right. Um, so um, uh, so it's important that um, uh, um, in the story, if you look at illustrations, if you look at many versions, the um, the tar baby is actually very explicitly identified as you know a person of African descent. Right, like very frequently, that's part of the address, the rabbit's address to the, the tar baby. So I just think that that's, I mean, I, I start to think about it when I'm thinking about the problem of identification and how people think about the slave identifying with the rabbit kind of unproblematically and automatically, mm -hmm. that actually what you find in that sequence is kind of the opposite, right? A rabbit trying and failing to elicit recognition from the sculpted image of a slave. So as with the epithet, you know, the racial denotation 
of the Tar Baby is very explicit, right? And, and it carries, I think, into stories where it's it's less explicit. But there's abundant textual evidence and also icon, you know, kind of iconographic evidence for that point. Um, in terms of why I think actually the rabbit is not stuck to the Tar Baby when when he um, flies into the briar patch. I think that there's something magical that happens in that moment. You know, because just as I think that there's this interesting thing early on when in the initial approach to the tar baby, we're kind of locked into the, the wolf's perspective. And you know, we're, not, we're laughing at the rabbit because we know things the rabbit doesn't know. In the end, obviously, we're laughing at the wolf because mm-hmm. we, we now know something that the wolf didn't know, right? which is that the briar patch is not an uninhabitable state of nature. Right? It's rather a home. It's a, you know, it's a side of nativity, right? You know, and so there's a way in which what's interesting to me about that is I think the briar patch shows up as a kind of deus ex machina in the story, right? It's been there all along, right? But suddenly it comes from the outside of that dramatic encounter to provide a, a, an escape that we had no idea was possible, right? But what that, what, the reason why it feels like a deus ex machina is that we couldn't see it before mm-hmm. because we were locked into the perspective of, of the wolf. Right? And so there's gradually then we're, we're shift, the, there's a shift in point of view that makes the, the briar patch available to us. And there's something then about how the release happens and the escape happens right? that is not you know, precisely about solving the problems in the terms that it's presented, but instead kind of magically unblocking the situation such that you know, the rabbit can suddenly become more sovereign, more complete, you know, kind of more autonomous than anyone could ever be, right? It's a kind of fantasy in that moment. And so because it's a fantasy, I think his kind of slightly implausible, inexplicable extraction from the tar makes sense to me. That's, that's something that you actually develop um, in talking about Liberty County. Yeah. That is the, the, the actual, the environment that lends itself to thinking of the briar patch, uh, not as you know my five-year-old brain's memory of uh, stinging nettles, but as as you say, as liberty, as as a place mm. of freedom. And uh, um, if 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 you read you know Walter Johnson's lovely book River of Dark Dreams, which mm. is about cotton culture. Slavery and cotton culture in the plantation, Lower Mississippi Valley, uh, between you know eighteen hundred and eighteen fifty, and and Johnson actually works this reversal, that you know on the one hand you have what he calls a carceral landscape, that is a landscape that is designed as a prison. It's a, a landscape in which lines of sight. Uh, the cotton fields are designed to, and um, the placement of roads and things like that are designed to create a landscape in which slaves can be seen and runaways can be seen. Mm-hmm. But that the nature of uh, plantation agriculture in these areas is always to leave these spaces of. Um, undeveloped, tangled um, edges into which runaways run and become, to some degree, kind of maroon-like. I mean, to the extent that marinage is available to lower Mississippi Valley slaves, which is in a very limited way, that's where it's occurring. Um, Do I have time to answer this question, or are we...? We have time. 
Okay. I, I will have the last word. I'll have the last word. Yes, absolutely. And it's complicated. As you remember from that section, too, I think that, that it actually also shifts importantly with emancipation. Right? Mm -hmm. you know, because like, so yeah, those, yeah, 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 so, yeah. So yeah. like under slavery, um, it's in fact the case that um, uh, you know, self-provisioning, you know, so going, going out in these places to gather, you know, to, to gather oysters or pick berries or hunt, right, um, is something that masters will allow slaves, right? You know, because this actually means that they have to pay less money for their subsistence, right? And actually in an economic downturn, this could make or break a plantation, right? So they are actually fine with allowing slaves to have, in most cases, these kinds of customary rights. It also meant that they had something they could take away. They could threaten to take away, you know, a, you know, a day off or access um, to, um, to the commons um, for subsistence. Um, this is something we have a lot of documentation of in Liberty County in that moment. It shifts, though, after emancipation um, when they're trying to enforce labor contracts and um, these kinds of resources for subsistence, hunting, you know, um, grazing your pigs or cows you know, out on common land, actually become a threat to the labor contract. right? As people, because it means that people could negotiate for higher demands, quit with the, the promise that they might be able to weather the loss of the job. right? And so there you see the the so-called criminalization of custom, important trope in the new social history, happening in that moment. And I think you can also see the versions of the Tar Baby story, both a story that is transcribed in 1893 and also a song about um, the rabbit and the Tar Baby that, that's, um, that's um, a little bit earlier, um, dealing with that kind of transformation um, in um, the, the criminalization of custom as it happens in Liberty County in very, very precise terms. Um, and it's really my aim, again, to kind of come up with something that is quite grand, but that also is specifiable in that way, right? where these terms can actually really be brought to the ground, which is why I spend so much time there in Georgia trying to show that actually it, you know, these abstractions are in some ways more meaningful in a local sense um, than the terms of politics and culture that, that previously um, we've, we've extracted from the story. Do we have time for one more question? One more question. All uh, right. One, oh, yeah, please, you, you, you ask it. Uh, I hope this isn't too large of a question to be <laughs> the last question. But um, I was actually really interested in the questions around um, gender and kind of children and family in yeah. this entire global history of the Tar Baby story. So actually, like, at a brass tacks level, of political economy with the relationship between the polis and the oikos or whatever. Um, it always struck me in the Joel Chandler Harris version and also the Song of the South version, it seems like the um, animals are anthropomorphized and kind of labeled as men. They're yeah. brer fox, brer rabbit, and yeah. so on. Um, and it almost seems like the briar patch is this zone that doesn't have Households or families, and it doesn't seem to have women and children. Yet the the tar baby is described as a baby, and all of that. So I was wondering if there is a kind of political economy discussion of family and um, you know wives and husbands and all of that going on. Yeah, it's it, 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 Daniel. It's a complicated question. Um, but um, but yeah, no, it's really important. And what and it, there are in different versions of the story, you see different kinds of bad masculinity. There's a lot to say there. The thing I would say, though, in terms of the, pol the politics of the story, is that the emphasis upon the briar patch as a site of social reproduction, right? Like as a site of domestic production, right? You know, all of the kinds of customs that I was describing, right, are actually very much gender integrated and are about, you know, uh, often about like petty production 
of, of you know, pies and you know, crafts for sale. You know, and so it's actually, I mean, it is really you know, the kind of nativity that's involved in the Briar Patch, and it's more than I, we can really go into, is actually gender is a very important factor in it. Um, and there are ways in which I think some of the, those claims are a little bit abstracted from the context that you rightly you know, kind of have some good questions about. You know? But I think there's no question, though, that the ways in which it's staking the political sphere on those kinds of commons institutions, those kinds of you know, customary practices, um, gender is a very important dimension of how, how production is being thought about there. So I'm going to ask this really final which may be uh, entirely unfair. Um, it is, um, it's kind of, the, the, the question I have is, is when you invoke world history, uh, what you mean by that? Do you mean here is a story that can be taken to uh, act as a, a sort of an index of conditions that one can find all over the world wherever one looks? Or do you mean world history in a kind of Hegelian sense? The former. So in the sense of like, well, two, a few things. The first thing, again, is like I'm thinking about world history in a kind of a received, what people have previously talked about as world history, which could mm -hmm. include Hegel. Um, but, I'm a, but I'm thinking about the story's aspiration to think all at once about the situations of peasants, natives, and slaves, right? Like it's actually you know, experiencing different versions of the same process, right? So there is this kind of will to abstraction, right? You know, um, that, that is, I think, you know, I, I think, you know, um, a kind of attempt at a global imagination. And that's motivated, again, by the sense that people for so long have seen the story's politics as something that's contextual, contingent, that's based on kind of interest-based action under local circumstances, mm -hmm. right? So part of it is, is kind of a negatively motivated kind of attempt to restore the degree of abstraction that I think is really in the story, you know, but it's also the case that I think that, that the way that that abstraction works is it's an attempt to explain situations that are similar but different in many, many different times and places. So it's a kind of, you know, I would say a kind of global attempted explanation, mm -hmm. right? You know, that again uses many of the same terms, narrative devices, as you know, things that we tend to call philosophy. Right? And it's actually an accident of disciplinary history that we have not afforded this story that capacity for abstract thought that we're very willing to afford Locke or Grotius or Puffendorf. Right. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this Berkeley Book Chat, and we encourage you to join us in person or via podcast for future programs in the series.